Welcome to the Simpleton Podcast, where we try to solve all the world's problems and cause a few more. Welcome, Laura Heeman. Thank you, Clark Massey. I want to tell you something that uh, I've been vibing with lately. Okay. Do you recognize the name Dwight Yoakam? Uh, country singer? Yes, kind of a rockabilly okay. country singer. Uh-huh. He's my motivational music these days. I'm not really, I don't listen to a lot of music, but when I do, it's usually Dwight Yoakam. But my favorite <laughs> song right now is, mm-hmm. um, there's another artist called Chris Ledoux. He's got a song called Cadillac Cowboy. Okay. This is like my spirit animal. <laughs> uh-huh. Like a horse trailer on a Cadillac DeVille okay. going down the highway. That's nice. Uh-huh. <laughs> do you have any spirit animals, Laura? I don't believe in the uh, concept of spirit animals, Clark. Neither do I. That's why mine's not an animal. <laughs> I do like this like new kind of word, vibing. I think that's already out now. It's a couple, a couple years ago. He'll be yeah. like, the, the vibe of this. I actually like that concept yeah. of the vibe. Um, I also want to answer another question that I'm sure everyone who watches us on YouTube is wondering. What type of optical illusion is happening that there's this, that my head is the same height as this door behind me? I don't think anyone is wondering that. It's actually a miniature door. Yeah, I think that's what people are assuming. It goes to another realm, <laughs> but that's not what this podcast is about. Okay. So you have to. That was what the last podcast was about. Yes, go listen to the last podcast. <laughs> All right, what this podcast is about is something that you're all dying to know about and it's going to cause you all to have um, brain damage, serious brain damage and identity crisis. We're going to talk about (laughs) vocation. Uh, We're going to talk about the wrong ideas of vocation and a couple of things that kind of help set you on the right track with it. Mm -hmm. Um, It's kind of like for everyone, regardless if you already find yourself in vocation. Yeah. Um, And then we're going to go into, uh, Another topic that's a little bit more political, (laughs) but I don't even know how to introduce it. So we'll just have to roll. All right. Launching in. We've been wanting to discuss vocation, partly inspired by a listener who sent us some emails about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And also because we're working with young people all the time, we're struggling with it. But even in our own lives, you also have to keep on vocation. So I'm hoping what we say is useful to everyone. Yeah. And I think we found like the idea of vocation um, especially when influenced by some misconceptions about vocation are like one of the weightier things, uh, on a lot of like young people that we counsel. It, right. It's a topic that just constantly needs addressing at a simple house and probably in the wider church as well. <laughs> and we have more to say about the wrong ideas than the right ideas. But yeah, the first step is to like get people in the right perspective to get all of ourselves in the right perspective. Vocation is not just whether or not you are going to get married or become a priest or something like that. There's kind of three solid grounds for vocation or three layers of vocation. The first one is I've only found in Pope Benedict's writings, and he talks about that development is a human vocation, that the most primordial, I can't remember if he uses the word primordial or like what the word was, but it meant like before all else, Mm -hmm. your vocation is to be more. Yeah. Basically it's to develop as a person. Like, a priori or whatever. Yeah, yeah a okay. priori, right? But yeah. it also is interesting. He was kind of saying it in the context of that's what we need to help other people do. Like if you're in a place with a child or in a place of great poverty, help those people be more. And that's part of helping them achieve their vocation. Yeah. You know, sometimes it's like in ministry, the all that we have accomplished is like helped a person like get out of bed, you know, earlier and be there for their kids, you know, (laughs) and it's not necessarily like a Christian conversion, but it's like a positive thing, you know. Right. I tend to not think of it that way. I tend to think of it as um, to me, like the way you just described is like they had a duty they're failing and we're helping them do better. Mm-hmm. You know, they haven't become a saint by any means, but they've done like yeah. a, the first step, you know, yeah. um, I think of it kind of like you meet someone who has no opportunities, no possibility of growth, no possibility of getting a job or something like that. And you are giving them these opportunities to do that, like to yeah. be more, you yeah. know, ultimately it's always them. So yeah. I think the secondary human vocation, which applies to everyone particularly every Christian is the universal call to holiness. Mm -hmm. 
And that's always your vocation, no matter if you've gotten married, haven't gotten married, don't know if you'll ever get married or become a priest or whatever. You're always called to be pursuing that vocation now. Right. And then the final idea of vocation is what we usually mean by it, which is, you know, consecrated life or priesthood or marriage. Yeah. Whenever you talk about vocation, it's it's easier to point out the wrong ideas of vocation than it is to like set on a platter the correct ideas. Yeah. Right? Like there are some ideas that people told me when I was discerning that were useful to me. Um if I if I said them out loud now, which I maybe I will. Uh like for example, a, a monk once told me that vocation is where the greatest need intersects with your deepest desire, intersects with just what's possible. You know? Okay. I don't think that's like that's a, a lot. Yeah. Well, I thought that was yeah. very useful to me in my discernment. Okay. You know, um, yeah. I wouldn't put that idea in the catechism or tell anyone that that's uh, what it's all about, though. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, but it was useful. You know, like to me, it helped me kind of discern like I really wanted to be a missionary. The most romantic form of missionary work is like overseas in some primitive tribe or something like this <laughs> or some totally foreign or anti-Christian yeah. area. But it just wasn't plausible. I didn't have the language skills. I didn't have the help. I didn't have anything like that. So it kind of like yeah. helped me make a decision on what to do. Right? Yeah. So in a way, like these positive ideas of vocation, it's it's easier to dismiss the bad ideas than to bless the good ideas. Yeah, yeah. I feel like anytime I talk to vocation, I, I talk to a young person about vocation, I'm, you know, have this like use this if this is useful. And, you know, if it's not, it's not, you know, because it's like, I, I feel like I tell someone like, figure out what your deepest desire is. And it's like tailspin of <laughs> anxiety uh, could ensue right. or whatever. It's really hard to put the right discernment technique and the right idea of vocation, like on a platter and serve it to people or to do any better job than the catechism does. And like just putting it in writing it's much easier to talk about the wrong ideas that haunt people. Yeah. And the first idea I think that's worth discussing that I meet over and over again is that somehow when you die, you're going to like go to heaven or go to the gates of heaven or final judgment. And they're going to be like, um, okay, what's your name? Like George Smith. And then they like go to the file cabinet and St. Peter goes to the file cabinet and pulls out a file that says George Smith. And they open it and they say, oh, I'm sorry, George, you were supposed to marry Anne or George, you were supposed to be a priest. Yeah. You failed your vocation. Yeah. Right. Related ideas um, would be like that if you fail to discover like your correct vocation, you're going to kind of throw (laughs) cosmic order off, you know, or like there's going to be like crazy repercussions, you know, and, you know, there are times when God asks us to make choices that will have consequences, obviously. But yes, like if I don't become a priest, like all these other things will go wrong or um, I had once a uh, priest tell me that he knew of a man that had a uh, vocation to the priesthood, but then he got married and he was unhappy and his wife was unhappy and his children were unhappy. (laughs) And yeah. Right. And all that's kind of built on this weird idea that you have this, like that God has this like plan for you. That's basically the same thing as the pagan idea of fate. Yes. Right. You have to like discover. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's the other issue. Like, so one is like, does God have a plan for you that um, if you don't follow it, you've screwed up all God's plans. Another idea is that if God does have this plan for you, has he hidden it like a secret riddle that you have to unlock? Yeah. You know, and both of these are kind of like strange ideas. Yeah. You know, Uh, they're strange because one, we already know that we already failed the plan. Yeah. Um, we already sinned. We already have failed the plan many times. We're not on plan B. It's not yeah. like we failed plan A and we're on plan B. We're right. on ban- right. plan like triple Z. Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and you're always messing up your life in a sense beyond repair. Right. But it's just repairable because God helps repair it. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's also a weird idea that God has like secret riddle type desires for you. Mm-hmm. And that he's not going to make these things obvious. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's kind of like an unworthy idea of God, like that he's like hiding this from you in a way that this does not mean it's going to be obvious to you what your vocation is, but the idea that God's the one uh, wrapping your vocation right. up and challenging you to go unearth it is kind of a problem. Yeah, yeah. That, and that, I think some of the best vo- <laughs> vocation advice kind I had when I was trying to discern if I should become a nun or not was like, oh, like, why are you worried about this? Like, God's not silly. He'll let you know, you know, and I, you know, there's like, you might have some obstacles that are, like you said, not God, like, you know, and, and sin and selfishness um, amongst them. But, but yeah, but it's, 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 he's not gonna keep it hidden. It's not like there's a puzzle box God has put in your life for you to unravel. Yeah. And that that's the spiritual work that's been assigned to you. I think the spiritual work is much more clear cut than that and harder. Yes. You know, yeah. the puzzle box is almost like a cop out. It's like a looking for a secret decoder to learning when what you really need to be doing is kind of breaking your heart, loving God, following him humbly. Right. You know, and allowing the Holy Spirit to transform you. Yeah. You know? Yep. It, yeah. It's also interesting because uh, we were talking about this idea of the long loneliness. Or this concept that you always feel like you're a stranger in the land. Yeah. And you meet people who, who act like that is their vocation. It's almost like their vocation is to not have a vocation. You and I kind of argued about this for a long time (laughs) because I, I found the idea of like loneliness very helpful, um, at a certain time of my life. And I think like Dorothy Day and Catherine Doherty um, is where many people might find this concept, you know, and I think the way in which it was helpful is I, I think it helped me identify something that I was feeling because I was trying to turn away from the world and it was hard and nobody could do it for me, <laughs> you know, and I had to go to God and that is hard sometimes, you know, and I had to, I had to, you know, turn around and go um, on my own to God, where then I actually find like, like the best friendship, right? And the best community or whatever. And so it's not like I go to God to find loneliness. I think what you're saying is that the long loneliness or the foreigner feeling is like an aridity that brings you to a greater union. So it's like it's like a uh, it's mm-hmm. something that leads you to a better place, not like the place you're supposed to just inhabit. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. OK. Yes. I think and that's I, true. I yeah. You said like this is something that we are trying to resolve and growing closer to God, not cultivate. Right. Right. Yes. And then and then there you would differentiate like lo- like loneliness and, and solitude, you know, um, I think one of the confusing things about this is there's some biblical references to this idea, you know, or some good texts on this idea. But I think the model you just proposed is completely fine in and of itself. Right. Mm -hmm. But I want to step back and talk about this kind of like big picture. Right. You are thrown into this like reality or the reality. It's all made by God. It's all made by the person who loves you. It's all for you. You could never be more at home than in the reality you are in right now. Mm -hmm. Right. At the same way, though, you could also say there's something wrong. There's something that you need to be restless about. There's some there's this error that has occurred. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So there's always this feeling of like this strangeness in this reality. But there also needs to be this. You could also make the argument that there should also this be this like there's no better place for you than where you are right now, because like this is all from the loving God who created for you. Like this big soup you're in of reality is all of God. Yeah. But there's also this air in it that makes us not be able to like settle down or just relax completely, you know? And I think that's where a little bit of this like correct foreigner idea comes from. Like if you were to say, I'm always going to be a foreigner. It's like, well, yeah, because you're not really of this world. You're meant for the more perfect world of heaven. Right. That's correct. Right now, if you were to say, hey, I feel terrible. I feel lonely all the time. I'd be like, yeah, that's not it. That's not right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. But there's there's a longing that the world will never satisfy. Right. That's that's the thing. But but not like um, I'm growing closer to God and I'm getting more unhappy, more lonely, more (laughs) um, feeling like I don't belong, you know. And you even see this when it's not really th- like this is a vocation issue. This is also just an issue you see in people's spiritual lives where they'll be like, I'm experiencing aridity. 
I'll just accept it because that's just what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. Right. And it's like, actually, aridity is like pain. Like it's like, yeah, pain in your body is meant to tell you that something's wrong and that you need to change it. Yeah. Right. And so the aridity is usually to lead you back to God. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's usually a sign that something needs to change. But then people say, oh, but what about all these saints? And they talk about the dark night of the soul and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. I've got two issues with that. One is when you read that stuff, it's very rare and they say it's very rare. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. not. It, most aridity right. is not dark night of the soul. But the other thing is the useful test for this is if you experience aridity and it immediately makes you more passionately pray and and look for God. Yeah, it's from God. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? If you experience aridity and it makes you want to give up and quit. It's probably not from God, (laughs) but that's not really the vocational issue. The vocational issue is when someone just feels like I never fit in. Am I just going to, am I, should I just embrace this outsider feeling as my vocation? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's like, uh, whoever gives up friends, family, everything for the kingdom will get it back a hundredfold, you know, and here in this life. And I think like, you know, like I've, I've known some nuns and priests that really wanted to be like, you know, mothers or fathers. And, and sometimes they might experience a little sadness in not actually having their own child, but overall, like, I think the, the ones that are healthy and doing well feel like they've really been able to live that, uh, motherhood, fatherhood, but like, you know, exponentially. <laughs> um, and, and I love that. And I think that's like God's faithfulness. Right. I do think that yeah. that, you know, to expect that you will get that back in this life, too, is the is an important part of that promise, you know, that yeah. people science forget. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We got one more kind of like real off track idea that we want to explore before we get on to more <laughs> positive ideas. There was a book that came out. I think this book is, is probably 100 years old or so. Tan had it uh, in print about 20 mm-hmm. years ago, and now it's available online as a PDF. I half like this book, even though I don't think I would ever recommend it directly. It's called Vocation, the Unnecessary Mystery. It's by a um, <laughs> Father Richard Butler, a Dominican. Mm-hmm. Um, like many tan books, it's like an old book that's been reprinted, right? Yeah. And um, I love that title, just knowing nothing about it. All <laughs> right. I love the title too, right? I picked yeah. this book up and worked through it for a little bit. And it's all just one argument over and over and over again. You know, and it's kind of like Jesus says, come follow me. And then they kind of have this big argument about not argument, but there's this part where Jesus talks about like, you know, marriage is forever. The apostles say, if there's no divorce, like it's like illogical to get married. Like, why would anybody get married? And he's like, true, you know, and some people will make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven, mm-hmm. you know? And then he says after that, those who can accept that do. Like, meaning, like, if you could accept to become a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven, you should. You should, yeah. Right? And that's this um, author's main point. Mm-hmm. So this author believes that everyone who could in a religious life or who could become a priest just should, you know? And it would be almost like every Christian who is not obviously wrong for should become a postulant and stay there until they just can't proceed any longer, and then they should go get married. So it would be the majority of postulants would leave. Right. Yeah. Right. There's kind of a, like, if there was a, like, this does not fit with our current, like, structure of church, right? Or the current kind yeah. of like, magisterium way <laughs> this is all working. I could almost imagine a world in which this did work okay. You know, like, we all get a taste of monasticism or a taste of, you know, these different, like, like more celibate vocations until we're just like, this is not for me and take off. You know how, like, um, the Amish, like, send their people out, you know, <laughs> when they're oh, yeah. 18. Yeah, yeah. It's like we would send our people in. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. That would be great. Um, yeah. So I guess in a way, I've, I'm not sure this guy is so wrong. It's somehow not very useful, though. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And part of the reason why it's not very useful is you'd have to have very you'd have to have very good vocation directors because you meet people who are like one of the kind of like talents you can have as a person is having strong willpower. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And strong willpower can get in the way of holiness. Yeah. And the way the, the it, it's a talent, meaning like it's a positive unless it kind of 
gets in the way of holiness. And so an example would be like, I knew someone who was a good friend of mine for a long time and had very little willpower, right? So whenever a challenge arose, the person was immediately like, yeah, succumbed um, to... Yeah, floored by the challenge. Yeah. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And immediately cried out to God for help because they always knew they were um, inadequate to the challenge before mm-hmm. them, right? And because of that, they actually were a pretty successful person who was pretty brave because they always would just be so overwhelmed, but then actually take action because they'd have faith that they could do something, mm. you know? There are other people, though, who kind of like just have a lot of um, talents as a person. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And if you tell them, hey, go be celibate or hey, go fast or hey, go live as a hermit for a year, they kind of can. Yeah. You know, not so much yeah. because they're getting grace to do it, but because yeah. they just have the um, internal resources to do it. Yeah. Right. Right. I feel like I've I've met people in religious life that I would have thought like, I wish you had to deal with a few toddlers right now. <laughs> to like ground you um, because it's like a sort of toughness. That- yeah. It's not clear that that is an okay way to have a vocation, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it doesn't bear fruit in the same way. It doesn't make yeah. you like humble and loving. It's kind of like, it makes you tough, kind of like a marathon runner who just like would only rely on themselves. You know what I mean? To make it that distance yeah. is not becoming a humble person. Yeah. You know, yeah, I, I think I used to have this, like, you know, you your friends in the seminary or they try being a nun and it's like it doesn't work out. And I used to be like, oh, I'm sorry to hear like that was kind of my attitude. And I'm like, wonderful. Oh, right. <laughs> like you found out, you know, and success. And I think like um, I know Benedict Rochelle like thought that most of the new guys wouldn't make it or, you know, I don't know, like a big number of the new guys should leave after the first year and that that was kind of like a successful postulancy or whatever um, or novitiate. I don't know which one comes first. Um, But this is like uh, saying like, oh, I'm sorry you had to leave is like, oh, I'm sorry you weren't like tough enough, you know, whereas like you left, you, you tried something bravely and now you're bravely leaving, <laughs> you well, know, you know, yeah. if that's working well, it's working fairly quickly. And what I mean by that is like, I've seen like PhD programs where the way it's set up is, yeah, we'll take you as a PhD student and the person goes three, four years. Maybe the professors are already getting to know that this person is not cut out to get their PhD, but they'd never kick them out. Right. They just start withdrawing funding. They don't give them the same benefits. And then they like start writing their dissertation, but it's never getting approved. And then the person's like eight years in and starts to realize, hey, maybe I'm never going to get this PhD. Right. But I've seen another PhD program that was like, hey, we have a test at the end of the first year and we're kicking everyone else out who doesn't meet, who doesn't cut the mustard after one year. And then it's like, okay, you took one year of your life. It didn't work. Right. 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 So, like, if, if, if what these religious orders are doing is allowing people to come in, giving them a very great spiritual experience and deciding, you know, as much as you can in one year, you know, or ha- three months even, or whatever the time period is, but it needs to be short. And you're not like saying, Hey, you're in our order for seven years. And then you decided you're not cut out for it. That's bad. Yeah. And I'm not saying that anyone who did that's bad. I'm just saying that that's not a good system. Yeah. I I mean, I, yeah, I think sometimes it takes people a few years, but yeah, but (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. Well, it takes people a few years. Seven years is a long time. Yeah. Right. Well, there's also the issue of it's partly for the person to come to the decision. It's also partly for the vocation director. Right, 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 right. Right. Um, okay, good. So, yeah, you know, part of this unnecessary mystery problem is there's also this idea of higher and lower vocations. And this causes a lot of confusion to people. Yes. And a lot of stress. (laughs) Right. So in a sense, like you say that like consecrated life and the priesthood is a higher vocation than marriage. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. offends people to say that it's not meant to be offensive. Yeah. Right. The contemplative life is a higher vocation than the active life. This has always been the language of the church. Yeah. Right. And there's a sense in which if you feel like you could live a great vocation of the contemplative life, you should not join the active life. That's kind of what that means. Yeah. Right. 
There's also this structure within the church. It's my understanding that like if you're in a religious order, you can transfer to another religious order that in a sense has a higher mm-hmm. calling, but you're never yeah. allowed to transfer from a higher calling to a lower. A, a priest, a diocesan priest can also do that. Right. So yeah. like, like a Benedictine may be able to become a Cistercian Benedictine. Mm-hmm. And I, my understanding is the ultimate order you can't transfer out of is the Carthusians. Yeah. <laughs> They're the order that's considered yeah. like the highest that there's no other. Nowhere but, to go. <laughs> but then you meet young people who like are like, well, I want to do the best thing in my life I can. So shouldn't I just be a Carthusian? Yeah. It's like, well, there's, I don't know for sure, but it appears to me there's only a hundred or so Carthusians worldwide. Like there aren't yeah, many, yeah, yeah. you know, like I'm not yeah. sure there's a thousand, you know, but it's like, it, it can't be that that's the way you're meant to discern. It's just choose the highest and be done with it. You know, you know? I, um, when I, we were making like our baby registry before our oldest was born, you go into like Bye Bye Baby or Toys R Us and there's just like so much crap, you know, and It'd be like, oh, my gosh, there's like so many bottles to choose from. And these are really expensive and these are really cheap. And then it's like there's a person there that's like trying to help you. And they're and the whole time they're saying like, well, you do want what's best for your baby, don't you? You know, right. (laughs) And it's it's this is like what and, and it's not useful. And we got the expensive bottles and we got rid of them because they were a pain to clean, you know, <laughs> um, and uh, it's not helpful. <laughs> right. It's kind of um, like not really discerning. It's just saying, hey, here's yeah. the trick to discerning. Pick the highest or something, yeah, you know. Right. So now let's talk about a trick to discerning. <laughs> One way to tell when you're on the right trick. track. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's not really a trick, but we can call it that. <laughs> here's uh, a discerning hack. Here's a discerning hack. <laughs> That's well laid out in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to, well, it's well laid out on the Simpleton podcast. <laughs> the ultimate vocational hack. Here's a vocational hack. You can have confidence that you are on a good vocation path. If you're becoming more real, more authentic more human, more yeah. normal. Mm-hmm. And that these are kind of the marks of holiness. Holiness is not becoming more other, more yeah. different, more separate, more unhappy. Yeah. It, it is supernatural. Yeah. It's just authenticity is harder than inauthenticity, yeah. Yeah. you know, and it takes grace to achieve it, you know? Yeah. And you see people have to work at being authentic. Yeah. You know? And it's like, it's interesting, like this idea of celibacy, like when someone says, hey, I don't think celibacy in the priesthood is natural. You should be like, you're right. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> celibacy is not natural. It is supernatural. Yeah. And when celibacy is done well, it doesn't seem unnatural. It doesn't seem um, like the person's all constrained and becoming right. not human. It actually makes the person feel more human, more real, more authentic, more available, more normal. Right. Through the supernatural celibacy. And even like even in their sexuality, which is part of being a human. Right. When you seems see healthier. Yeah. When you see yourself tempted or another person, it happens. You can see this in other people and in yourself to live your holiness as if it's like a greater strangeness or exaltedness mm-hmm. or etherealness that puts you above others and things like this. Mm hmm. You should be incredibly skeptical of that. That's a huge yeah. warning sign that the devil's yeah. in the going something's happening yeah um similarly um that like choosing your vocation or growing in holiness is like always the harder more miserable path (laughs) um yeah i i think your vocation is should like speak to your desires to your happiness you know and it's it's not it's like the sacrifices you make for your vocation um, like, like say fasting it would be kind of a corollary sacrifice, right? It's like, it's distressing at times to give up something, you mm-hmm. know, but ultimately it's not what makes you unhappy. It makes you happy. Yeah. You know? So if, if you're giving up things and carrying the unhappiness as if that is your vocation, there's something wrong. Yes. Right. I'm not telling you you're in the wrong vocation. I'm just telling you you're carrying it wrong. Like when kids are a burden as opposed to a joy, we have to like pause for a second and start rethinking what's going on. Yeah. Right. 
And an example of this like mo- idea is um, we had Sister Kateri on of the CFRs, and she was like, you know, I knew I had my the vocation disorder when she's like sitting at this talent show and this homeless man singing, sitting at the dock by the bay, and then all the CFRs start singing with this guy, and it's like this incredibly human moment happens, and she's like, okay, I can, I should be here. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and there's just something she, like, like I like that. <laughs> that fits with my personality, and I, I know both when I was trying to discern if I should be a nun, and when uh, before getting married, I dated a wonderful guy who was not a good fit for me. Um, people kept repeating over and over, like, well, like, you know, your vocation is hard it's hard, you know, like, and, and living your vocation is hard and choosing to be a nun is hard and marriage is hard. And I think, (laughs) I think this is really bad advice. Um, and I think there should be an ease, you know, and a peace to following whatever you're being called to. I think another, uh, funny story that helps illustrate this is, um, (laughs) At Simple House and in this podcast, you get what we call Father Adamisms, like little stories and <laughs> anecdotes from yeah. the great monk Father Adam. Yeah. And uh, one of his stories was that when he was at the monastery, um, just he was there for the weekend to like study for college or something. And the porter was very excited that he was there and wanted him to really meet the vocation director. So he's trying to get in his car to leave the monastery. And the porter's <laughs> like, no, you got to meet the vocation director. So he drags the then, you know, not Father Adam <laughs> into the vocation director's <laughs> office. And the vocation director is like, oh, you know, did the porter send you in here? And he's like, yeah, he goes, yeah, he does this all the time. And uh-huh. the Abbey, you know, had all this farming going on and the vocation director had been in the fields all day farming. And while they're talking about possible vocation, uh, the vocation director falls asleep in his chair. Because <laughs> he had uh, been farming. Because he had been farming. Yeah, he'd been working all day. <laughs> and uh, Father Adam says that at the moment when the vocation director fell asleep, he realized that he had a vocation to this monastery. <laughs> and the that's the way vocation works. The porter knew what was up. Yeah, the porter is the one with the insight. Yeah. All right, let's go on to the next idea. So um, do you want to treat your vocation as a gift or as like a duty and responsibility? And how do you choose it? You know, like how do you figure out yeah. what this duty and responsibility is or is it just a gift? Another father atomism that I love is when he says that you're supposed to be childlike. And if you could imagine yourself as like a four-year-old and your dad comes in and says, you know, it's your birthday. What would you like for your birthday? And if you tell your dad, dad, whatever you want for my birthday is what I want for my birthday. You're kind of a stupid four-year-old. Yeah. You're supposed to say, yeah. I want cake. I want the transformer. Yeah, and I want a transformer, and I want a ball, and I want to do this, and I want to play, the and I want to do this. Ball, the biggest Nerf gun, you know, known right. to man. <laughs> and it, it gives God joy. It gives the father joy to fulfill all the good desires yeah. of their child. Yes. Right? Yeah. So ask, like St. Teresa Lisieux would ask. St. Teresa Lisieux is like, I want to be a priest. I want to be a missionary. I want to be a cloistered nun. Yeah. She yeah. can't be all those things. Yeah. But she kind of was all those things. Yeah. You yeah. know, and yeah. this is like our idea of like the way we need to approach life, like approach it with two hands grasping. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. This is just this idea of like, it's a gift that you are meant to enjoy and to embrace. And not want. like this. Yeah. And <laughs> want not like a, um, a job you're meant to drag your feet towards. Right. You know, like, right. like I got to go execute my duty now. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I've like uh spent some time with like Baptist friends who like really tell God what's what, you know? <laughs> like I, I feel like Catholics are really worried about doing God's will, um, in a way that sometimes can make Catholics be like the lame four year old, you know? And um I've been kinda moved by my Baptist friends that are more like and I know you're gonna 
get me into heaven, God, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. And there's just like that trust and confidence that, you know, yeah. I had a seminarian tell me this story. I've, by the way, I'm often like, um, wonder that guys at seminary, if they view what they're doing as like a burden, you know, not mm -hmm. always seeing it as like an opportunity or a gift or if they see it as a duty, then they're thinking like, you know what, if I wasn't doing this, I'd be marrying this like really beautiful, hot woman over here. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Like this supermodel. Right. And yeah. I wonder how many guys who carry that type of idea end up leaving seminary for like this, like supermodel who doesn't exist. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, the seminarian told me this other kind of different way of thinking about that different story said that he was like struggling with his idea of whether or not, you know, he should be married or should be at seminary. And he was thinking about this and he went home for like break. And while he was home on break, he was with his dad and his dad's friend, his dad friend brought his daughter. Right. And the daughter was, uh, very beautiful and very nice. And, and uh, she had uh, red hair. I don't know why that's important, but that was important to the seminarian. <laughs> and, <laughs> <laughs> and and they like hit it off like oh they were like all hanging out this yeah. seminarian and this um you know daughter of the dad's friend like really hit it off and uh he went back to seminary like perturbed right and then he found out he either got a message or something that she like had had a great time too and like wouldn't mind seeing him again things like this right and uh then he kind of was like wow you know like that's kind of cool like she likes yeah. me right um and then he said he had he went to bed and he had a dream and in the dream he saw a future where he would go marry this woman yeah and it was beautiful and everything uh they had a great family and they were happy and um he said in the dream he felt like god was saying and you can have this like this is okay yeah you can do this if you want to like this is great you know this yeah. look how good this is this is great you can do this it says or you can like come with me and be a priest and it's going to be great, even greater, you know? Yeah. And he said that in that dream, like when he woke up, he realized, Oh, I'm going to be a priest. Yeah. Like, you know, he had the beautiful vision and right. still. Yeah. And it wasn't like, because it would suck to go get married. It was like, it was like, he was like being given two great gifts and he chose one, like the higher one. This is what the word yeah. higher kind of means. Right. Yeah. And, it's just like he chose it with great freedom. Yeah. Not out of duty and responsibility, not because God's forcing him to. Yeah. But because he got to. Yeah. You know, I kind of feel like this is the right attitude, but I also kind of do like that. There's the famous poem, the hounds of heaven. Yeah. There is this sense in which God can haunt you that, Hey man, you need to consider this more. <laughs> right. Right. Um, right. Like God sometimes does like, ask specific things of us. Right. And it's like, he gives us a gift and the gift might have some hardship in it or some sacrifice, you know, it's going to certainly have some sacrifice. <laughs> um, and it would be sad if we turned it down out of fear or anxiety or whatever. Um, right. Yeah. But to receive it always as gift is important. Yeah. You know, you get to do this and it's, it's blessed, you know, yeah. Let's talk about two other ideas. We're also going to talk about what happens when you feel like you've kind of fallen between the cracks on your vocation. Yeah. But let's, but let's talk about, um, I'm going to tell you how this idea came up. So I love the original Lego movie mm -hmm. and I was on a plane recently and the Lego movie was one of the things you could watch and I didn't have earphones. So I'm like, have, I'm like watching the Lego movie on silent. Right. Yeah. And I'm developing this appreciation of it of how amazingly creative that movie is. And one of the things that's funny about that movie is there's so many constraints on the movie. Like they're kind of writing a movie where they're trying to show as many Lego sets as possible. And they're trying to make it mirror the old movie, the matrix. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And whenever they show a Lego set, oftentimes they have to import the characters from that set, like Batman or the dream team the U S yeah. basketball dream team shows up. Right. So it's like, they're making a story where so they're, they're constrained at every level. Like they want to keep referencing and mirroring the matrix. 
they Batman shows up. He's got to actually be Batman. You can't just be any character you made up. Right. You know what I mean? And it's just like genius. You know, yeah. the way they do it. Yeah. Right. And it feels more creative than almost any movie I've seen where they just get to make up anything they want. Yeah. So it's like somehow by being constrained, they became more creative. Yeah. Well, I, I love like when people find like uh, solutions for fixing things that isn't like um, going to Home Depot and getting the kit or something right. with the instructions, you know, and and I mean, sometimes you need the kit, but but there's like the person that can kind of figure out the solution with what they have might be like a more talented <laughs> right. handyman I, or something. Exactly. Yeah. yeah really yeah. good handymen do what works. They don't do yeah. it always the right way. They do what works yeah, well, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so this is also interesting in the context of theology, and we're going to get back to mm -hmm. vocation in a minute, but I think we've read this quote before on the um, podcast. Mm -hmm. um, where do you have the quote in front of you? Yeah. Sure, do you, you want, want me read to read it? it? Um, okay. All right. This is a quote from uh, Pope Benedict. Um, there are, of course, many petty minds and repeaters of the past, even among Orthodox theologians. They are to be found everywhere. Hack theology has enjoyed a particularly rapid growth precisely where there was too much noisy chatter about creativity. For a long time, I shared the impression that the so-called heretics were really more interesting than theologians of the church, at least in more recent times. Now, however, when I consider the great believing teachers from Moeller to Newman to Sheevan from Rosamini to Guardini, or in our day, de Lubac, Congar, and Balthasar, how much richer and more relevant is their testimony than the witness of those who let the corporate subject church slip through their fingers? These masters are a clear witness of another truth. Pluralism happens not when we make it the object of our desire, but when everyone wants the truth with all his power and in his own epic. So he's kind of saying that the Orthodox theologians that were not mere repeaters of the past are the most creative people, not the people who yeah. rejected the past and tried to start from scratch. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And this seems to just kind of be interestingly true. Like if you follow the 10 commandments, you're kind of freed up to yeah. live a more full life, a more creative life. Mm -hmm. But by definition, following commandments seems less free. Yeah. But yeah. there's this kind of weird, like, truth in there that it actually is freeing. Yes, yeah. I think that this is interesting in, with it regards to vocation, because it's like a vocation is a constraint you put on your own life. Right. And I think, like, it's your vocation as a Christian. Like, I, I think that there's, like, an aspect that you need to, like, give yourself over to something fully and that you need to, like, be, like, sacrificial, you know. And I think... Like if you're a parent, those constraints are just making themselves apparent <laughs> constantly, you know, and you don't have to figure out the way you're going to be sacrificial because you have to feed your children every day, multiple times a day, you know, et cetera, you know. Um, right. Like, like marriage is one example of giving yourself this constraint. Mm -hmm. um, priesthood is a constraint. Consecrated life is a mm -hmm. constraint. And then children are like an even another constraint. Like this right. strange, ever evolving constraint right before you, you know, that you have to be responsible for and take care of and and give the very best possible life. Right. Um, yeah. But it's like it's like a formula, like it's like a framework or something that's like tried and true. And, and you're plugging yourself in with all of your particularities and interesting things about you, you know, and you're going to live it. Oh, you know, hopefully the way God has designed for you specifically to do it, but it's this tried and true. And it's exactly yeah. what um, we're going through today as a society is what was happening in theology that Benedict's talking about, right? Like mm -hmm. we're, we've, we're raising people to not think that marriage or ha becoming a parent is like an obvious vocation. Like they think of it yeah. as like, well, maybe I'm not cut out to be a parent or maybe I'm not cut out to be, maybe I don't want to. Like it's one of a zillion different things I could do with my life. Right. And unfortunately what they find is by the time they start getting tired of the things that might feel fulfilling in their youth, they're already closing doors and they're not getting that long-term fulfillment. And in a way by, by becoming more, giving themselves more options, they actually hurt their happiness. Yeah. yeah. More options for romance or more options for 
you know, just all the different types of things you could do with your life, you actually decrease happiness. Yeah. I, by the way, think that like everyone should have a certain amount of creativity and questioning of the norms. You know, yes. it's just when you question every norm, you do not have yeah. enough lifetimes to figure everything out. Yeah. You know, like if you're going to wonder whether or not you're a man or a woman and whether or not monogamy works <laughs> or polygamy works. And by the time you've like figured out anything, you've, be, you've also damaged yourself greatly, you know? Right. So like right. if there's a hundred norms, question five of them seriously and figure yourself out. But once you start questioning a hundred, you have no way to proceed and make progress. Yeah. Um, Ben, if this is weird, cut it out. <laughs> if it's weird, um, definitely so, leave it in, Ben. <laughs> uh, so I just heard this thing that I have been kind of turning over in my head. Um, you know, the Harvard longevity or the Harvard, like there's a study that has followed um, people like since they were babies into old age, you know, and they've made all these like observations. So by the time you're like 30, you're supposed to have like kind of worked out a little bit like like who you are and what you stand for, you know, and um, this is like to kind of maximize happiness or whatever. And then like into your 40s, the things that you say you are and want to do are lining up with the things you're actually doing, you know, <laughs> um, and then uh, there's a thing um, in that like in your fifties, these like pathways in your brain open up and you actually like just have like a lot more perspective and nuance available to you than when you're younger, if you're kind of like living well, you know? And, um, a thing that, uh, struck me about this is like, well, why, you know, why not have the nuance when you're younger? <laughs> and I just thought like, well, like in your twenties, you're kind of like, trying to fight and make a path for yourself and choose, you know, and you have to like make choices, maybe like nuance isn't <laughs> helpful always in making choices, but like you have to, you have to start like saying yes, no, yes, no, you know, to then like know who you are in the world, you know, and it's like the constant exploration doesn't let you discover. <laughs> I mean, sometimes uh, what you're talking about is called youthful idealism. It's also like yeah. the young are more prone to be get ideological, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, this is also a reason why young people should listen to the older people. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think so. But it's like if you want to have like the fight to make a choice, you know, <laughs> like it's like nuance doesn't always you don't want to be a black and white thinker ever. Right. I, I think you, you want to have nuance and yes, and welcome perspectives, especially perspectives of people that have like gone through something before you. Um, I just thought it was interesting that there's these kind of like stages that have been identified in this like very long study when people. Right. Are I, you know what this is bringing up in me is that for book club, we're reading a uh, Cardinal or St. John Henry Newman's a uh, fictional book, loss and gain. Yeah. Yeah. And it's about these like college students at Oxford, which is, by the way, great. Cause I feel like we all like have this like very like beautiful view of like what it must have been like to be a student yeah. at Oxford, right? And Newman's like someone who lived there for a long time and was at the yeah. heart of the Oxford movement and really knows, right? Yeah. And one of the things he's showing about all these like freshmen at Oxford is that they're kind of all stupid. Like they all like <laughs> keep yeah. grasping onto these religious arguments. Yeah. Without any perspective and without any like big picture perspective. Right. And there's like this moment where this like uh, Oxford undergrad is arguing that, you know how there used to be like um, you still see it in the Eastern Orthodox churches. There's almost like not just an altar rail. There's almost a veil between you and the altar. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Actually. Yes. Okay, uh -huh. yeah. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of Anglican churches, a lot of where Anglican architecture comes from is taking Catholic architecture and ripping things out. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh -huh. But like, so, so they would rip out that screen, but sometimes they would keep the top piece that used to hold the screen that arches over. Right. And this guy's arguing for that top piece as like so important. And that that's like, we need to build new churches that never had screens and put that top piece in. Uh -huh. You know, he has a name for it. I had to look up like, yeah. whatever he was referring what to. I didn't recognize was. the name. Yeah. yeah. 
And it's just like any outsider would be like, but it's not holding up the screen anymore. Yeah. It's yeah. such a weird, I mean, like you could tell he's just wanting tradition. Yeah. You know, but he's making this like almost nonsensical argument, you know, cause he lacks perspective. The perspective. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. And it's also like what you're really arguing for is some other type of liturgical thing. And there, he's also bringing up like he's also bringing like evangelicals at Oxford in who are saying like, look, the whole point is loving and walking with God. And you're kind of like, yeah, that makes sense. Like yeah, yeah. liturgy should serve that. Like, <laughs> like give us some perspective here. But then the evangelical yeah. then say something that shows that he totally lacks perspective also. And it's just this interesting like immaturity you're seeing in these guys. And it's been interesting to me a little bit because I get kind of harsh with people when they're making some passionate argument about yeah. like something that doesn't have perspective. Right. Yeah. And it's not that there anything they say is wrong. It's just it's got they're not they're not holding it in the correct emphasis. Yeah. And I, I don't know I how feel to respond. Like I, OK, I, I one thing I a pet peeve of mine is when people kind of make fun of youthful idealism and I'm like. No, make fun of like youthful lameness, <laughs> but like I, I, um, and, and maybe it's more like, um, when the youthful idealism is about something that's like so stupid, it doesn't matter. Like, should there be this top piece in the church or not? You know, that's irrelevant to anything like that's like a bad focus of your youthful idealism. But I, I feel like I, I love when it's like young people are um, experimenting with how to be Catholic or Christian or whatever, and th and they do something that bold, <laughs> like an older person might be like, but why, <laughs> you know? And I, if anything, I feel like I have the opposite problem where I feel like people romanticize the useful idealism. And one of the oh, problems yeah. I have with it is often they're the useful idiots. You know, like if the you become like idealists, a, yeah, they become useful idiots. Did I say that right? Yeah. Um, like if you're like, if you become like a single issue environmentalist, right. The older politicians are using you as an idiot, you know, and yeah. they're trying to channel all that energy you have for your single issue. And they're like using it for a different scheme, you yeah. know, cause it's naive. It's, it's a lot of energy, but it's like, yeah, I guess I, I see like, um, like, uh, just as a smaller example, like I remember someone telling me they came back from this mission trip and they got rid of like all their clothes, you know? Right. And That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, this is awesome. And then later they were like, <laughs> I didn't actually need to do that, you know? <laughs> and I have to go buy some new clothes now. <laughs> right. But, but it was great because they were trying to like give their whole heart over to God, you know? And it's like, you do that and realize this is not who I am, hopefully. Right. If you don't, you become the useful idiot. But like, I, I feel like you got to do some bold things when you're young and find out what sticks and be honest, you know, about what is working and not working. Well, you know, what's an intersection with vocation on this topic is I call it romance, mm -hmm. right? Like to get married, you have to, you, sh you probably need to feel romantic. Yeah. yeah. Right? <laughs> Maybe 50 year olds yeah. get married without being romantic, but like you almost need this like nearly irrational desire for the other person. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's also true with priesthood and all these other yes. religious life issues. Yeah. You almost have to fall in love with the order. And like when you meet someone who has like fallen so far in love with the Dominicans or the Franciscans, it's kind of stupid. Like, like yeah. as an outsider, you're like, that's like kind of like foolish. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. it's also this like idealism in a sense, like they're just so taken, you know? Yeah. And that kind of gets you through that first phase in a way. Yeah, I you know. my my uh, pharmacist uh, is maybe sixty, <laughs> and he was always very nice. I'd never thought very much about his appearance, but uh, he uh, rekindled like a uh, relationship from his youth and was like you know getting married. And it turned out we kind of knew some people in common. But he was like telling me about this woman and they're getting married, and it was like he looked twenty years younger, and I was like, oh. He's a handsome man, <laughs> you know? Uh, and yeah. So I, I, I don't know. The you romance know, was there too, but right. Romance is there too. Yeah. What, what becomes yeah. a problem 
the reason why we need to warn against it though, is like people become romantics, right? And people have divorces because they're romantic. Like it's like the Jane Austen, uh, you're talking about the Jane Austen. What do you mean? What I mean is like, if you think that love is primarily romance, Uh then when the romance fades, you start looking for other sources of the romance and it's usually a different person. Yeah. Right. right. Now you can protect some romance and you should always probably have some romance. Right. Yeah. But if romance is the foundation, you're kind of screwed. Right. Like the foundation for you going into religious life should not be because you think the Dominicans are just the most awesome group ever. That's going to get destroyed. You're going to meet bad Dominicans and that will not lead you through. It has to be for Christ, period. Well, it's actually kind of like a weird way to say like this spouse of mine is my only option or this religious order is my only option. If you think the romance, cause, cause there's going to be other people. <laughs> well, right. Um, well, people late yeah. in life fall into new romances and they get divorced over it. You yeah. know, they do foolish it, things over it. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so it just, it's, it's like it's romance stupid. is yeah. like a good thing though. Like romance is good. Romance is, is good in its like perspective. <laughs> But, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I Um, I think like when people want to say things like, oh, marriage is hard. I think, I think like more appropriately, they're referring to that. Like, yeah, you know, sometimes some of these feelings fade and you have to work at it and whatever, you know, but. I can't remember who wrote this. I feel like it was JP too, but it was JP two or Benedict, but it was like, um, the reason why we're kind of against divorce is because divorce kind of like this like serial monogamy traps you into like perpetual adolescence. Like no serial. Well, divorce is a oh. version of serial monogamy, right? Like you're, you're, I see, we're I see. Monogamous, sorry, sorry. And you're yes. going to break up and become monogamous with someone else and blah, blah. Right. So like if, if that's like your life plan is like serial monogamy, then um, you're trapped in perpetual adolescence. Like you're only going to get that part of love. That is that first part. Not that yeah. part that is the 20-year-old part or the 40-year-old part or the 50-year-old part, which is different than the one-year-old love. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And has a different character and flavor and value, you know? Yeah. And not that you can't still have a little bit of the one-year-old love when you're 50 years married. I kind of hope you can. Right. But it, it, like, like when you leave the 20-year marriage probably because you've already failed at some level. But if you leave that 20 year marriage to go have another one year to go back to the first step of what is love, you're, you're never like really fully experiencing love. Yeah. Um, I'm sure some theology of the body people would love to comment here because I'm not, I'm not saying it as well as some people would. I kind of think like, I, I, you know, like, uh, Certain type of feminist would want to accuse the church of like, you know, being a uh, misogynist or whatever. And I think this is like interesting. Um, oh, um, right. Right. Like monogamy protects women. <laughs> you oh, know? no. But yeah. like I will make the opposite case. And I love making this case. I didn't oh. think I was going to do this today. Oh, boy. Um, monogamy more protects men. Like and the reason is, is go look at any polygamous animal. Right. Go look at lions. Guess what happens to most of the men? They get eaten. One in 10 men has polygamy. Nine out of 10 men get killed. If you go look at Mormon, like these kind of like weird Mormon polygamous groups, guess what happens to all those boys? Enormous suicide rates, Mm, enormous abuse rates. The, The boys are the ones who like whenever you don't have monogamy and you have polygamy, the males are the ones who pay the price. That's interesting. It well, looks like it's more favorable to males. It's actually more favorable. It's le- less favorable to males. Okay. Many monogamous relationships is different from polygamy. And if you're in the many monogamous relationship route, you know. Uh, if society goes to many monogamous relationships, which it kind of has, yeah. um, what you find is that the top men have a lot of relationships and all women have relationships and the bottom men have zero. But not old women. This is getting. Oh, weird. this is true. But they still had a relationship, you know, during their lifetime. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm saying if, if you want, oh gosh, this is getting so weird. But. I mean, it's bad for women too. Like that's yeah. what we're kind of missing here. Is yeah, polygamy is bad for women. Serial monogamy is bad for women. It's terrible for women, right? But I think it's not. It's not good for men, and it's particularly not good for the eighty percent. Yeah. Yeah. Um. 
I, yeah, right. It, I, I think it's more tragic really for men. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's comparing two evils. But yeah, I think it's more tragic for men. But yeah. um, I think when you see it like aloud in the Bible, it's probably because a lot of men were dying. Yeah, like in battle or yeah. whatever. You yeah. know, there's probably a shortage of men. Um, yeah. All right, let's, let's go back. I want to do another Father Adamism to get us back on vocation. Yes. So what happens when you walk up to Father Adam and you say, I don't know what my vocation is? <laughs> Father Adam says, I don't have a vocation. <laughs> um, yeah, this, this is like a way Father Adam would troll people that were like in the midst of like, ah, my vocation, <laughs> like, what is it? And very stressed out by, you know, uh, and he would just, he would always say um, that he um, joined the Benedictines, you know, didn't find his vocation there, but didn't leave. <laughs> right, right, right. By yeah. the way, Father Adam's still alive. We're talking about him like he's dead. <laughs> like he's still alive and well. He just doesn't want to be on our podcast, so we have to imitate him. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, we have good. to troll the world for him. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Another thing he used to say is, I don't, I'm not really called to be a monk of this abbey. I'm called to be a monk. I'm not really called yeah. to be a I'm I'm called to be a monk of Christ. And yeah. then he'd say, I'm not really called to be a monk of Christ. I'm just called to be of Christ. Yeah. You know, like, like that's the root of vocation, right? Yeah. Just this idea of like, he's called to be of Christ is that it's not like an identity. Like it's like. Like your identity I'm is Christ, monk. nothing yeah, less. Right, right, right. And it's like, even saying I'm a monk could be a distraction from that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we're all called to be of Christ. Yeah. If in your marriage or not married or wherever you are, you know, that's kind of, the, it's kind of like making the universal call to holiness really actually the ultimate point after all. Yeah. You know, it's like these constraining vocations of marriage and priesthood and, and a consecrated life are actually to serve the universal call to holiness. Right. You know, um, to give you a context in which to live that out and be creative, you know, yeah. Now, so let's talk about the situation where you're reaching midlife and you have not fallen into this third type of vocation. Like you didn't become a priest, you didn't join an order, and you're not married. Mm -hmm. Right? Historically, a lot of people in that actually just went into religious life. Yeah. Like if you, like there's, there's just a lot of stories that that, and that's not necessarily wrong. Like, yeah, we're right now in this era of the church you go to religious life for very deep calling reasons. You don't go to religious life because things As didn't work out. As a backup plan. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That has been a valid source of vocation in the past and yeah. maybe it will be in the future. You know, like yeah. there's even the case of Abba Moses of the desert fathers who went to the desert to become a desert father because he'd murdered somebody and he was running from the law. <laughs> and he became Saint Abba Moses, the desert father. Yeah. You know I mean? It was a valid vocation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I think there's this other idea, oh, man, we're becoming a broken record on Father Adam today, but I guess he helps a lot of young people and we've repeated a lot of things he says. One of his thoughts is, um, well, before we say that, if you um, are not falling into a vocation, uh, there are certain career paths that benefit from celibacy. And you see this as like, it's often what convents and religious orders do. You'd notice that a lot of them are into teaching and a lot of them are into healthcare. Right. And it's because, um, like if you're a carpenter and you're celibate, you're not going to be any bit a better carpenter. Right. But if you are a, um, teacher and all you do is worry about your children and the best way to explore this, et cetera, et cetera, you actually can be a more gifted teacher. And the yeah. same is true of like sometimes in um, healthcare, you're asked to give your life and give service to someone yeah. in a way that a, a married person with kids can't do. Yeah. Right. And that's why those career paths are often associated with religious orders too. Mm -hmm. Right. But I think you don't, even if you don't end up in one of those career paths and you don't end up into what the official like vocation categories are, um, this is where we get to the father atomism. He says, um, the way you know you're not being a loser is if you have three things going on. You have an address, you know, like a location where people know who you are and are, you know, like you, you stand in a place. Yeah. 
you have life insurance. And the idea behind life insurance is it matters when you die. Like people are depending on you and they need you and mm-hmm. you're important to the community. So you have to buy life insurance so that when you die, it could take care of some problems. Yeah. And you have to have a library card, which means that you're still intellectually active. Yep. Yep. And I think we know single people who are living that. Yeah. You know, they're not losers. They have addresses. They have, they, yeah. they are important to their community and they have a library yeah. card. Yeah. Yeah. Eve Tushnet, who wrote the book, um, gay and Catholic, I thought there was a very powerful idea in there, um, that it's like, um, if you are gay and trying to like live a Catholic celibate life, you need to get plugged in yourself, plugged into like family life somewhere into community somewhere, you know, where you're having those kind of, um, relationships. And I was like, yes, (laughs) Also, if you're like a single Catholic, you know, or a single person who is who is um, trying to be celibate and live, you know, I maybe even if you're not trying to be celibate, I don't know, like you you need to have some children in your life or some older people or whatever. And you need to have, you know, like just some of that familial um, structure and relationship in your life, you know. Um, You know, one of our podcasts that people love is um, Garrett. Garrett. So if you haven't, if you're kind of new to our podcast, maybe it was released last September, saying September 2022. Uh, we interviewed Garrett. He has the weirdest vocation. And yet yeah. when you hear him talk, you realize he's on vocation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway. I just want to say one more thing about that um, is that I think, like I said before, it's like, kind of to be living your vocation, you got to give yourself over to something like sacrificially, you know, and there's, I think like one error is like to be constantly searching for your vocation and doing all these like Catholic activities, but they keep you from like kind of making choices and living real life, you know? Um, I think that's right. I think that th- my advice there is that have an address, life insurance, and a library card. Right. Meaning, like, don't yes. don't just be casting about, always discerning. Take a stand. Exactly. Have that address. Yes. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And make and, yourself. But I, I think that's like a a thing that you know these people might have the third piece of kind of having the intellectual life. <laughs> right. But but yes, but it's like eventually um, those those things become lacking. Yeah. Right. Anyway. Yeah. There's some singing in the background. This was the official podcast of A Simple House, the Simpleton Podcast, where we discuss vocation. Um, Please like, subscribe, comment, and share it with your friend. Anything else you got, Laura? I will see you later, Clark. All right. Peace be with you. All right. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.